The Secret Service was warned Trump would turn on Pence and put Pence's life in danger. The lead starts right now. A top Pence aide was reportedly so worried about Trump's fury with Pence for refusing to overturn democracy, he warned Secret Service before January 6th. This is another top Trump White House aide is indicted, arrested, and brought to court. And President Biden tries to celebrate a strong jobs report while his attention is otherwise consumed with inflation and gas prices and gun massacres and more. The beginning of what could be a long, hot summer. Plus, delicate diplomacy. Biden refuses to confirm a meeting with Saudi Arabia's de facto ruler, MBS. To be fair, Biden once vowed to make the country a pariah because of its horrific record on human rights. Welcome to the lead on Jake Tapper. We start today with our money lead and President Biden heralding a, quote, terrific jobs report while also acknowledging that record high prices are causing serious problems for far too many American families. There was good news in the jobs report released this morning. U.S. employers added 390,000 new jobs. Unemployment stayed at a near record low of 3.6%. And 96% of the jobs lost when the pandemic erupted are back. But... None of that will immediately help lower the sky-high costs of everyday goods, such as groceries or gasoline. The current rate of inflation in the U.S. is 8.3 percent. President Biden said this week there's not much he can do to lower prices in the near term. The White House is also struggling to find a legislative way to attempt to curtail gun deaths, a way that Republican legislators would be willing to go along with. One of the key Democratic negotiators on Capitol Hill telling CNN he's preparing for failure. CNN's Caitlin Collins starts off our coverage today with a closer look at how the White House is trying to get their arms around this slew of problems. That's a sign of a healthy economy. The number of Americans working or looking for jobs rose last month in a promising sign for the economy and President Biden. Working age people have come back into the workforce at a faster rate in this recovery than at any point in the last 40 years. The Labor Department says U.S. businesses added 390,000 jobs in May as the unemployment rate stayed steady at 3.6 percent. Despite the better-than-expected report, the fight against inflation is still far from over, as bigger paychecks aren't keeping up with higher prices. There's no denying that high prices, particularly around gasoline and food, are a real problem for people. President Biden warning Americans that much of the fate of the economy is in the hands of the Federal Reserve and Russian President Vladimir Putin. Putin's war has raised the price of food. I understand that families who are struggling probably don't care why the prices are up. They just want them to go down. Joe, what are you going to do to bring them down? The president also answering calls to, quote, do something on guns following a series of mass shootings. They had one message for all of us. Do something. Just do something. For God's sake, do something. After his urgent appeal for tougher restrictions like an assault weapons ban, universal background checks, and red flag laws, the president says he's being constantly updated on the status of gun talks on Capitol Hill. My staff is dealing and has been dealing constantly with every member of the House and Senate who's wanted to talk about guns. It's been a constant interchange. But the president sounding cautious on whether his direct involvement would warrant a deal. I will do what I can to try to see if we have some real progress. 
And Jake, when it comes to the economy, one thing that President Biden warned about today were those job numbers slowing in the months ahead as the Federal Reserve is raising interest rates to try to tame inflation. The president says that's going to be a good thing if you're not seeing those huge numbers that we've seen play out over the last several months as the economy has tried to recover from the COVID-19 pandemic. Of course, Jake, those have been the numbers you've been looking for almost every month when this report comes out. And so this has been something the president is saying is saying now is going to be different. They are going to be smaller numbers. But Jake, he says that's a good thing. It's a sign of a healthy economy. That is part of the message that he is going to be trying to sell to Americans who are worried about the economy as the White House spends the month of June hyper-focused on this issue, Jake. All right, Caitlin Collins at the White House for us. Thanks so much. Joining us now to discuss is Cecilia Rouse. She's the chair of the White House Council of Economic Advisors. Thanks so much for joining us. So President Biden said that the U.S. can tackle inflation from a position of strength because of the jobs numbers. And the jobs numbers are great, but inflation, as you know, is out of control. What do you say to Americans out there who listen to the president and say, hey, I can't afford to fill up my car. I'm coming, cutting back when I try to feed my family. So what I what I would say is, that, you know, the president understands the cost that inflation has on families. But at the same time, what we understand about the American economy, which is in a better position than most other countries, is that we're coming at this with a, from a position of strength. Uh, because of the American Rescue Plan and other efforts of the federal government, we've gotten through what, this pandemic so far where we've recovered with one of the fastest drops in unemployment on history. Uh, a record increase in labor force participation, a record increase in the number of jobs. What we learned is that last month, the economy created 390,000 jobs, broadly based, and that if we look over the average of the last three months, it's been about 400,000 jobs. So the president highlighted in his op-ed at the Wall Street Journal that this is that we know that we're not going to have the historic job growth uh, that we've had coming out of the recovery, and that that is a welcome transition. And in fact, if we look at the 400,000 job, uh, jobs that have, we've had over the last three months, that does reflect a slight slowdown. So what we see right now is that we've got a labor market that is strong. Mm-hmm. It is starting to cool, which is what Chair Powell is looking for. And so we believe that the Federal Reserve will be able to manage inflation. Of course, the president is doing what he can as well, but that we can address inflation from a position of strength. Well, today, President Biden listed a series of steps that could be taken to lower the prices for every American. Nearly every single one was something that he has proposed but requires congressional action that, frankly, the White House has not been able to deliver. So let's just take one of them, allowing Medicare to negotiate for lower prescription drug prices. Why isn't the White House putting the full weight of the White House behind getting that bill passed right now? The president is absolutely focused on getting this bill passed. It is the foundation of his economic strategy. What the president seeks is an economy that is growing in a stable and steady, sustainable way, where the average American is seeing a healthy job growth, a healthy wage growth, and where our economy is growing in a sustainable way. So he wants to do that by making it easier for people to go to work, by lowering child care costs, by recognizing that health care and prescription costs have gotten out of control. Right. For you're families. talking about and the so whole bill. You're of- talking about the whole build back better bill. But that's stalled. You could take individual components like lowering prescription drugs by a- a- allowing Medicare to negotiate, mm-hmm. pass it through the House, pass it through the Senate and get it to the white president's desk. Now, it would not be the whole build back better act. But it would be something. Why not focus on these smaller things that can be accomplished? 
the president has said he is willing to work with Democrats, Republicans, independents to get the pieces that he can get passed. I am describing the foundations of his economic strategy. So of course the president understands that he has to work with Congress. We're a democratic society. Uh, he, he's not a dictator. He has to work with Congress and he wants to work with anybody, both sides of the aisle, to get what he can get done because he understands just how important this is for the future economic growth of our country. One of the criticisms we heard from uh, Washington Post columnist uh, Catherine Rampeller the, earlier this week is that there are other steps that the White House could be taking, but you're worried about the potential blowback. For example, lifting the Trump tariffs on China. That could lower prices, but Republicans might criticize the White House as being soft on China. Is that a fair criticism? The, the president and the administration were looking at we're looking at the tariffs. The president wants to if we're going to lower the tariffs, we need to do them in a way that makes sense for the American economy, for American workers, for American businesses. So all of these options are on the table and the administration is considering their likely impact on inflation as well as their likely impact on growth and where this puts us in a geopolitical context. So those options are on the table uh, because the president understands what inflation is doing for families. He, but he also is really focused on getting us in through this transition to an economy that is growing in a sustainable way. All right, Cecilia Rouse, thank you so much. Appreciate your time today. Coming up, CNN is live at the federal courthouse in D.C., where a former Trump advisor now faces contempt of Congress charges. Plus, the reported warning to the U.S. Secret Service the day before the January 6th insurrection from former Vice President Mike Pence's top aide. And the gun debate in Congress. What do Americans want as lawmakers are trying to find common ground? Stay with us. Turning to our politics lead, former Trump White House advisor Peter Navarro appeared in court this afternoon after being indicted for refusing to answer basic questions about the Capitol insurrection. The indictment came from a federal grand jury after a referral from the House Select Committee investigating January 6th. Navarro faces charges of refusing to provide documents to the committee and for failing to testify before it. The full House voted in April to refer Navarro to the Justice Department for not complying with the committee's subpoena. Navarro tries to argue that he could not cooperate because former President Donald Trump has invoked executive privilege in the matter. CNN's Evan Perez is outside the federal courthouse in Washington, D.C. Evan, what happened in court today? Could Navarro theoretically be facing jail time? Jake, he could. And look, this hearing turned into a bit of a, a performance, uh, as Peter Navarro tends to do. Uh, this time he was before a judge. He was there. You know, these types of hearings usually uh, are, are very perfunctory. They're very short. Uh, but in this case, uh, Peter Navarro had a lot to say. He said he was representing himself. Uh, he had a public defender standing next to him. Uh, and then he used the hearing really to rail against the FBI, rail against the January 6th committee. He called it a sham committee. Uh, he railed against prosecutors. Uh, he was arrested, Jake, today before, uh, before he flew to Nashville. He says that the FBI had a chance to arrest him at home, uh, about 100 yards from the FBI headquarters. But he said they waited until he got on board his plane before they arrested him today. So again, today he used his, this court case, this uh, court hearing to air some of his grievances that he's already aired in, in a lawsuit that he has filed against not only the committee, but also the Justice Department, claiming that the January 6th committee was, uh, is illegal, that their subpoena was illegitimate, and that he is protected by uh, President, former President Trump's uh, executive privilege claims. 
What might this mean for former White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows and former White House Deputy Chief of Staff Dan Scavino? They both have also been referred to the DOJ for failing to comply with the January 6th committee subpoena. That's right. And, and so, you know, because, because he and uh, uh, Navarro and Scavino were both uh, referred by the committee at the, on the same day, you know, this raises a lot of questions about why Navarro goes forward. Dan Scavino uh, was, has not been, uh, been prosecuted by the Justice Department. Neither has Mark Meadows, whose uh, referral was about six months ago, uh, Jake. And we also know that, uh, you know, obviously the Justice Department uh, is still investigating both the Scavino and the, uh, and the Meadows uh, uh, referrals. We also know, of, of course, that Steve Bannon has already uh, been facing charges here in this uh, same federal court. The best we can figure it out from talking to, uh, to sources, uh, Jake, is that, you know, uh, those, the other two, Scavino and Meadows, are considered very close advisors to the former president. So there's a level of protection that they enjoy that Navarro uh, does not enjoy. And so that's one reason why you see this case uh, going forward, Jake, and, and not those others. All right, Evan Perez, thanks so much. Appreciate it. Also in our politics lead, new details today about what the Secret Service was told ahead of the January 6th insurrection. And of course, it's mob chanting, hang Mike Pence, hang Mike Pence. According to the New York Times, Maggie Haberman, the vice president's chief of staff, Mark Short, warned Pence's lead Secret Service agent on January 5th that Donald Trump could turn against the vice president publicly and there could be a security risk to the vice president because of it. Let's get, let's get it from the horse's mouth. New York Times reporter Maggie Haberman, who has uncovered this for her upcoming book, Confidence Man, which comes out in October. Maggie, just to take a step back here, I mean, the idea that the vice president's chief of staff told the U.S. Secret Service that the president was going to be responsible for a potential security risk to the vice president, I mean, that's quite something. It's remarkable, Jake, and it's really not a story about the Secret Service. This is a story about the enormous concern that existed about the growing pressure that Donald Trump was putting on his vice president, this extraordinary dynamic where he was, you know, becoming increasingly aggressive in his commentary about a number of officials, but as he was trying to force Pence to essentially throw the Electoral College Trump's way, or at least back to states, on January 6th. And the fact that people around Pence recognized uh, that there was a potential safety risk because of this, because the former president has this, you know, mob uh, of of very ardent supporters who follow what he says. Now, do I think that based on my reporting uh, that Mark Short necessarily envisioned January 6th? I do not. But I do think that he envisioned that things that Donald Trump, uh, you know, could say could incite, you know, a handful of people, one person who knew what it would look like, but it could be very problematic for the vice president. Yeah. Pressuring the vice president to undo a democratic election, uh, or there would be a threat to him. What, what does the Secret Service have to say, if anything? Uh, I've not uh, had anything on the record from the Secret Service. Uh, again, I don't know that this is, you know, that, that it's not clear to me what, if anything, uh, the Secret Service agent uh, did with this information. Not clear to me that he viewed this as, you know, an, an, an immediate risk or, or how to handle this. Um, I think this was primarily about Mark Short's worry about where things were going and a couple of aides uh, as well around Mike Pence and where this was all headed and could be headed uh, over the following 24 hours. And Short's fears were confirmed. Uh, President Trump uh, yeah. attacked Vice President Pence at that rally. He issued 
tweets, mm-hmm. and the crowd yeah. literally chanted, hang Mike Pence, as they tried to break into the Capitol. And brought a, somebody brought a, a, a mock gallows uh, outside of the Capitol. You know, this was not, these were not chants that were being, you know, said just idly. This was not, you know, things get written off a lot in the Trump era as, as not that big a deal. This was a huge deal. And the other piece of it, Jake, that I think is really important to bear in mind is that for four years of the Trump presidency, um, you know, there was, a, there was a lot of concern about the tweets or about this or about that. And I think that everything was in such a heightened state of alarm you know, over such a long period of time that I think people became numb to where there were major real immediate threats. And I think that January 6th was was one of them, that it became essentially a failure of imagination on a lot of people's part to see where this could go, which is not it's not anyone's fault. Um, But it was clear that this was heading to a potentially dark place as you look back at everything in the lead up to that day. Well, Maggie, I mean, not to disclose something private, but I remember talking to you in December of uh, 2020, and you were personally very worried about where it was all headed based on what you were hearing. Yeah, what I was hearing was was dark. Um, I knew that, you know, there was growing pressure on Pence. I knew that the uh, former president was increasingly agitated. And the month of December, which I think is when we had this conversation, was right after this, you know, infamous December 18th meeting that that I broke a story about uh, in the Oval Office where, you know, Trump had Mike Flynn and Sidney Powell and Patrick Byrne, the Overstock CEO, in, you know, giving them a hearing about seizing the the voting apparatus and, and their desire to essentially rerun an election. It's just absolutely insane. Maggie Haberman, thank you. Can't wait to read the book. It's called Confidence Man, the Making of Donald Trump and the Breaking of America. It's not going to be published until October, but I can't wait to read it. Coming up, today we learned a child who survived the Uvalde massacre in Texas will appear on Capitol Hill next week, along with the police commissioner from Buffalo, New York. Coming up next, the new push for gun legislation in Congress versus what Americans really want. Is there a meeting of the minds there? We'll talk about it. Stay with us. In our national lead, it has been 10 days since the tragic shooting at Robb Elementary School in Uvalde, Texas, and there remain so many unanswered questions about what happened on school grounds that day. The police first providing false information, now providing none. One of the big inquiries, those chilling 911 calls from children in the classroom. It's still unclear if the officers inside the school that day knew that students were calling and begging for help from inside that classroom classroom that 19 officers stood outside of for more than an hour. CNN's Ed Lavendera is in Uvalde, where we're learning new details about the terrifying moments teachers first realized a gunman was on campus. Today, we're getting our first look at the preliminary death certificates of 20 of the victims in the deadly school shooting in Uvalde. The certificates detail that all of the victims died of gunshot wounds and that almost all of them were struck multiple times. Texas State Senator Roland Gutierrez says he wants to know more about what was happening at Robb Elementary School on that day, including what information was relayed to first responders on the campus from the 911 calls made inside the school. How in the heck are we ever going to fix schools if we don't know what happened here? The senator says he was told by the Commission on State Emergency Communications that the 911 calls were relayed to the city's police force. What remains unclear is whether or not that information was given to the school district police chief, Pete Arredondo. I have been told that this person did not have, this person being the uh, incident commander, did not have radio communication, and I don't know as to why. 
Gutierrez says he received the information from a law enforcement official at the Texas Department of Public Safety. CNN has reached out to the commission, police, and school district for comment on Gutierrez's statements and to Chief Arredondo to confirm if he had a radio. We have not heard back. Arredondo is facing serious criticism for making the call to not send officers sooner into the adjoining classrooms where the gunman killed 19 students and two teachers. I don't think any of us need to be rational people or policemen to understand that active shooter protocol says you go in. You go in immediately. Questions have also been raised over how the gunman got into the school. Initially, investigators said it was through a propped open door. An attorney for educator Amelia Marine says she was the one who propped open the door while helping a co-worker carry in items, but that she did shut the door when she heard her co-workers running and heard people yelling, he's got a gun. Marine, who ran to a nearby classroom to hide, survived, but her attorney says in the days that followed, she was overcome with emotions, thinking she may not have closed the door after all. It really shocked her, it hurt her, it scared her. It even made, made her second guess her own memories. And so she had, the Rangers had to tell her, no, it's, we've looked at the video. You didn't do anything wrong. Authorities clarified last week that the door didn't lock after Maureen kicked it shut. And Jake, the sad farewells continue here in Uvalde. Two more funerals being held today. And Jake, what is striking in this small South Texas town the funeral processions are so long that it really ties up traffic, brings everything to a standstill as the processions make their way through the city to either the funeral homes or to churches or to the graveyards. Jake? Ed Lavendera in Uvalde, Texas, thank you so much. As calls grow for legislation to address the crisis of gun violence in America, let's take a look at how the American people feel about potential new restrictions on gun ownership. CNN's Harry Anton joins us now from the Magic Wall. Harry, so there seems to be a, a bit of a divide between the polling and the voting, how people vote on something as basic as background checks. What are you finding? Yeah, I mean, look, if you look at polling for support for background checks for all gun buyers, this is a Knipiak poll from last year. Look at this. 89% overall said that they were for gun background checks for all gun buyers. 98% of Democrats, 88% of independents, 84% of Republicans. You basically never see that type of universal support for basically anything, even if the sky is blue. But here's the thing. Polling is one thing. How people actually vote is something entirely different sometimes. And so I want to go to the states of Maine and Nevada. Back in 2016, there were ballot measures for expanding background checks in both of those states. And Maine and Nevada were within a point of the national presidential vote that year, right? They're right in the center of the electorate. And what happened in Maine and Nevada? Look at this. In Maine, the measure to expand background checks got less than 50% of the vote. It actually failed. No one with 52% of the vote. In Nevada, it barely passed with just a little bit more than 50% of the vote. So for me, I look at the polling, it says one thing, but I look at the actual voting and it shows a very divided public, even on something as simple as background checks, Jake. Yeah, and we should remember the, the polling reflects the views of the public not necessarily just the views of people who vote. So there is, sure. a, there is a divide there. What happens when you look at gun views overall instead of specific measures? Yeah, you know, if you look at specific measures, you find this vast amount of array for, for, gun, for basically restricting gun rights. But look here, are you satisfied with U.S. gun laws? This is a Gallup poll from last year. Dissatisfied, only 36% of Americans say they were dissatisfied and wanted stricter gun laws. Look at this. 
The vast majority said they were either satisfied or wanted less strict gun laws. I love this question because it covers not only views, but the power with which people hold them. And here's the thing that I think kind of really gets at it. Which party do you agree with on guns? Look at this. An even split. 38% say they agree more with the Republican Party versus 37% who say they agree more with the Democratic Party. Hmm. Republicans in the 1990s uh, were much more willing to support gun restrictions. The, the 1994 crime bill, in fact, which contained uh, the uh, ban on some semi-automatic assault weapons uh, it, it, uh, or uh, semi-automatic weapons. It, it included the Brady Bill, et cetera. That bill was supported by 46 Senate Republicans. What changed? I'm Senate 46 House Republicans. What changed? The voters changed. That's what changed. So look at this. More important to protect right to own guns than control gun ownership. Democrats, basically the same, right? 21 percent, 20 percent, 2019 versus 2000. But look back in 2000, less than a majority of Republicans said it was more important to protect right to own guns than control gun ownership. Now, look at that. 80 percent. The vast majority say it's more important to protect gun rights than to own guns. I think the thing I'm looking forward most to in the midterm election Pre-Evaldi, gun policy, extremely important to vote for Congress. More Republicans said it than Democrats. We'll see if that switches now as the events have unfolded. Interesting. Harry Anton, thanks so much. Appreciate it. Joining us now, Thank you, Jake. Democratic Congressman Joe Nagusa of Colorado. He's a member of the House Judiciary Committee. Uh, Congressman, thanks for joining us. So you just saw Harry Anton's report showing that about as many Americans trust Republicans on gun control as they do Democrats, and that a majority of Americans uh, are satisfied with the nation's current gun laws, or think that they are too strict. So you're from Colorado. Your state has seen so many terrible mass shootings, including Columbine in 99. Why do you think that so many Americans don't see this issue the way you do? Well, good afternoon, Jake. Thank you for for having me on. I've certainly seen polling data that suggests quite the contrary, and, and I think your correspondent was right on the front end when he talked about the individual policies and proposals, for example, universal background checks, uh, red flag laws, many others that you've, of course, covered on your program uh, that are widely popular amongst the American public, including with gun owners. Now, as you said, uh, there are uh, some studies that suggest uh, on more broad you know, questions posed around uh, gun violence prevention that perhaps the data isn't as, as strong. Of course, that I think is in some res- respects a reflection of having unadulterated views prior to you know, the campaigns and, and influence of the gun lobby and so much more uh, that I think has shaped uh, the debate, the public debate around gun violence prevention in the United States. But as you said, here in Colorado, we are no stranger to gun violence. Of course, the tragedy at Columbine 23 years ago, but also, as you know, Jake, I was on your program a year ago when in Boulder, my community, uh, we lost 10 members of our community who were gunned down, murdered in cold blood at a grocery store in March of 2021. My constituents uh, have made it clear to me and and my colleagues that inaction isn't an option. They expect the Congress to take this seriously and to treat it as the crisis that it is. And I am confident, uh, Jake, while there are some who certainly disagree with uh, different policies uh, or proposals that we've made, that the vast majority of Americans do agree that it's important for Congress uh, to pass common sense gun violence prevention measures. So your committee just voted along party lines to advance legislation billed as an emergency response to recent mass shootings. It's a package that includes restrictions on large capacity magazines, raises the age to purchase certain semi-automatic rifles from 18 to 21. Um, it, It doesn't seem like that is legislation that has much of a chance of getting the 60 votes necessary in the Senate to defeat a Republican filibuster. 
Yeah, I, I think that your prognosis, Jake, is uh, is not wrong. I think, obviously, to the extent that the House were to calibrate any policies that we take up based off of whether or not uh, they would ultimately pass the Senate, uh, the House would, would never take up any legislation. The Senate is a very lethargic institution, and the filibuster a very high burden that unfortunately uh, has prevented, uh, I think, the United States Congress from taking decisive action on important issues that face the public, including gun violence prevention. All that being said, I think it was important, number one, for the House to show that we are being responsive to the concerns of the public, the policies that you just referenced, which are part of the omnibus bill that we considered last night, again, are popular common sense policies, raising the age from 18 to 21, uh, for example, for a purchase of a semi-automatic rifle, um, the, you know, the scourge of ghost guns, which have killed so many citizens, including members of law enforcement, addressing ghost guns in a material substantive way. Again, these policies are popular. It's important for the House to take that step. I am hopeful that perhaps uh, those mm -hmm. who are negotiating a, a potential deal in the Senate uh, will uh, you know, find some of what we do next week on the floor instructive. And by the way, Jake, I think we will get some Republican votes. We didn't, unfortunately, last night in the Judiciary Committee, but I, I think we will get a few colleagues from the other side of the aisle uh, to ultimately do the right thing and step forward and vote for this bill when it hits the floor next week. So after the disaster at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School in Parkland, Florida in 2018, Florida's Republican governor, Rick Scott, and the Republican-led legislature did a whole bunch of things, including banning weapon sales of semi-automatic rifles to people younger than 21. They raised it from 18 to 21. They imposed a three-day waiting period. They created a red flag law. They did a whole bunch of other things uh, to make school uh, grounds safer. Why not just take that legislation, copy it, and offer it up for a vote in the House and Senate? I mean, it's the law in Donald Trump's home state. It was signed by the Republican governor, who is now a senator in charge of the National Republican Senatorial Committee. Why not just do that? Well, that's a great question, Jake. I, I certainly would support that. I think the legislation that we passed out of the committee last night largely emulates many of the provisions you just mentioned. Of course, we're going to consider red flag laws separately next week, and I imagine those will also attract some bipartisan support in the House. Uh, I'm not part of the negotiating group in the United States Senate. Uh, I am hoping against hope that they are successful. And I would certainly think that the Florida template uh, that you just referenced, which garnered bipartisan support in that state, uh, would be a good place to start. Uh, one of the most frustrating parts of this, Jake, for me personally, and I suspect for so many uh, people across the country, is the, the inability for so many of my colleagues on the other side of the aisle, as I said, to do the right thing and to recognize uh, that these policies can, in fact, save lives. And they're, they're not partisan. And that that's deeply frustrating. Democratic Congressman Joe DeGuss of Colorado, thank you so much for your time today. We appreciate it. Have a good weekend. Candidate Joe Biden flat out said that Saudi Arabia's crown prince, MBS, ordered the murder of Washington Post journalist Jamal Khashoggi. Next, hear what President Joe Biden said today about a potential meeting with that de facto ruler. Our world lead now, President Biden, is downplaying a possible meeting with Saudi Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman, or MBS. MBS's everyone. hideous human rights record notwithstanding, he holds a lot of sway with OPEC, which Biden needs to open its spigots to bring gas prices in the U.S. down. The comments come as CNN's Alex Marquardt learns that the president could meet with the de facto Saudi leader in the coming weeks. The relationship with Saudi Arabia is one of the most critical the United States has, but is now one that has never been more troubled. Sources tell CNN the White House is working on patching things up, with a likely meeting in the coming weeks that would see President Biden face-to-face -face with the de facto Saudi ruler, Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman. 
We're, we're getting way ahead of ourselves here. Today, the president told reporters there are no direct plans to visit Saudi Arabia, but admitted there's a possibility he'll visit the region. A trip to Israel is also expected. What I want to do is see to it that we diminish the likelihood that there's a continuation of this, some of the senseless wars between Israel and the Arab nations. And that's what I'm focused on. These days, Israel's actually moving closer to Arab countries, including Saudi Arabia, not warring with them. The Biden team's efforts are complicated by past statements by Biden against Saudi Arabia. Candidate Biden on the campaign trail vowing to make Saudi Arabia a pariah. We were not going to, in fact, sell more weapons to them. We were going to, in fact, make them pay the price and make them, in fact, the pariah that they are. Once in office, the intelligence community accused the crown prince, who's known as MBS, of orchestrating the murder and dismemberment of Washington Post journalist Jamal Khashoggi. Officials, lawyers and human rights activists continue to howl about the long list of Saudi human rights abuses. The White House says Biden still views Saudi Arabia as a pariah. Today, he played that down. Is it still a pariah in your eyes? Look, I'm not going to change my view on human rights, but as president of the United States, my job is to bring peace if I can. Peace if I can. And that's what I'm going to try to do. From the time Biden called Saudi Arabia a pariah until now, gas prices have risen over 80 percent, driving up inflation. Since Biden took office, Russia has started a war in Ukraine. Iran's nuclear program is surging. Saudi forces are fighting Iranian-backed rebels in Yemen, currently with a fragile truce. And Saudi Arabia is moving closer to China. All critical topics that Biden needs to work on with Saudi Arabia and its controversial crown prince, who is likely to rule for decades to come. And I just heard from the widow of Jamal Khashoggi, Jake. She said that the prospect of a meeting between uh, Biden and the crown prince is horribly upsetting. She says if it happens, that the president will have lost his moral compass and greatly heightened her grief. All right, Alex Marquardt, thanks so much. Appreciate it. Coming up next, a very grand party without the star attraction. Stay with us. Pomp and drama. Buckingham Palace says 96-year-old Queen Elizabeth will miss another jubilee event. The Queen already missed today's Thanksgiving service after feeling some discomfort yesterday. As CNN's Max Foster reports in our world lead, there was still plenty of royal drama even without Her Majesty. Bells toll for the Queen as guests arrive at St Paul's Cathedral in London for the Thanksgiving service, including former PMs, the Mayor of London and ministers. Prime Minister Boris Johnson, also in attendance, receiving boos from the crowd. But perhaps the most notorious guests were Prince Harry and Meghan, welcomed with cheers in what was their first public appearance as a couple at a royal event in two years, since a very public break from royal life. The Duke and Duchess of Cambridge make their way to the cathedral next, closely followed by the Duchess of Cornwall and Prince Charles, who was there to represent the Queen in this celebration after the monarch felt discomfort after Thursday's events. As the Queen watched from Windsor Castle, Charles took her seat, one that he's ordained to one day take himself as king. But even in her absence, the Queen's public service, her life and even her love for horse racing 
were at the heart of this event. Your Majesty, we are sorry that you're not here with us this morning, but we are so glad that you are still in the saddle. A touching service enchanted by the cathedral and royal and military choirs and prayers. Keep on doing. And even a reading from the Prime Minister himself. But the ceremony wasn't without its hiccups, including a last-minute change of Archbishop after the Archbishop of Canterbury contracted COVID-19. It was a beautiful and cheerful ceremony, honouring the longest-serving monarch of Great Britain. And in the first royal event in St Paul's Cathedral, without the Queen in 70 years. Queen Elizabeth and the Duke of Edinburgh go to the races. The BBC is also hosting a party at Buckingham Palace later that day. The Queen is not expected to attend but to watch on TV. Acts include Alicia Keys, Ed Sheeran and Adam Lambert. Preparations underway for the concert behind me. Jake, she won't be there. She's not going to be at the races either tomorrow. She's due to attend the races at Epsom. She's going to watch that on TV as well. So we're not going to see her in public on this third day of the Jubilee celebrations. Whether we see her on the final day on Sunday, they're going to make that decision in the morning. But so far, it's gone well for her, despite the disappointment that she hasn't been able to go to these uh, landmark occasions. All right, Max Foster in London, thank you so much. The discussions among the U.S. and allies as Russia's war in Ukraine reaches 100 days. Stay with us. Welcome to the Lead and Jake Tapper. This summer, summer vacation is back after a two-and-a-half-year hiatus for millions of Americans. But getting to your destination might be only half the battle. Once you arrive, it might be anything but relaxing. We'll explain. Plus... The Uvalde cops, in the cavalcade of false information they initially shared, told you and all those mourning families that a teacher had propped open a door that the killer used to enter the school. That, like so much the police originally told us, was false. We're going to hear from the teacher's lawyer this hour. And leading this hour, today is the 100th day of the war in Ukraine. 100 days of the same unprovoked, brutal Russian assault that Vladimir Putin seemed to think was only going to last a few days, with Russia seizing the capital of Kyiv and ousting Ukrainian President Zelensky quickly. 100 days later, that has decidedly not happened. Zelensky remains defiant, releasing a message to his country that, quote, victory shall be ours. 100 days in, the cost of victory is steep. A top Red Cross official saying the scale of destruction in Ukraine, quote, defies comprehension. Once vibrant towns, now piles of dust. Nearly 7 million Ukrainians have escaped the violence by leaving their country, according to the UN. Millions more displaced and war cutting short the lives of at least 243 Ukrainian children, according to officials. For 100 days, the world has witnessed the cruelty of Russian forces. Bucha, Borodyanka, Hostomel, now home to hundreds of war crimes investigations after the Russian invaders left behind mass graves filled with the bodies of the innocent of women and children. A theater sheltering innocent women and children bombed, despite the giant words written outside in Russian twice, children, as an attempt to appeal to Russians' humanity. Despite this, 100 days in, Ukrainian forces stand strong, stopping an invasion of their capital and sinking the jewel of Russia's fleet of warships. CNN's Matthew Chance is live for us, and Keith has been covering Putin's brutal invasion since the beginning. Matthew, how is the mood among Ukrainians in the capital today on this grim milestone of 100 days? 
Well, it's amazing because I've been out and about inside Kiev over the course of the day. Um, and it's remarkable how the city has sprung back to life um, since the dark days of when uh, it was being bombed on a sort of daily, if not hourly basis uh, by Russian cruise missiles and Russian warplanes. And of course, since the Russian forces have been pushed back from the suburbs of the city, People have flooded back into it. Uh, shops have started to reopen. Cafes have started to reopen. People are sort of trying to sort of regather some semblance of, of normal life. And, you know, in some ways you can imagine at times that there was no war happening at all. But scratch the surface of that, of course. And everybody you speak to knows of the atrocities that have been carried out over the course of the past hundred days. We're all painfully aware of the territorial losses that Ukraine has endured. 20% of its territory now under Russian occupation, according to Russian officials. And of course, the, the damage that's been wrought on the infrastructure, on towns and cities elsewhere, and on the civilian population. And everybody in this city knows that even though it's, it's pleasant in the center of the Ukrainian capital right now, those dark days could be back. And, and, and people are aware that at some point in the future, it's possible that Moscow could once again turn its attention back on the Ukrainian capital. And so, yeah, people are, you know, kind of trying to live their lives, but with that in the, well, not just in the back of their minds, but you know, also thinking about the terrible fight that the country is still engaged in. All right, Matthew Chance in Kiev, thank you so much. Today, President Biden trying to make it clear that he's leaving it up to Ukraine to decide if Ukraine should give up land to Russia for peace. Let's bring in CNN's Natasha Bertrand. Natasha, you have new reporting on the U.S. working with allies on a framework for a ceasefire as they fear there, there is no end in sight to the war without diplomacy. What are some of the ideas being discussed and is Ukraine on board? Yeah, Jake, so really intensive conversations happening between U.S., U.K. and European officials about what a framework for peace would actually look like, a ceasefire would actually look like. Importantly, the Ukrainians are not actually part of these discussions because these Euro the Europeans, the United States and the Brits do not want to make it seem like they're pressuring Ukraine to come to any kind of concession. So what we have learned is that as part of these discussions, a four-point plan that was presented by Italy has been uh, among the topics of conversation, and that includes uh, Ukraine uh, potentially giving up, of course, its bid for NATO membership, so neutrality in exchange for some security guarantees from international, the international community, uh, as well as, and this is the part that Ukraine really does not like, ceding uh, or negotiating territory with Russia. So negotiating the future of the Donbass region and Crimea. And that is something that the Ukrainians have really ruled out at this point. And this is a challenge for the Biden administration. And as these officials have these conversations, because they see no appetite right now by either the Ukrainians or the Russians to sit down at the negotiating table and actually come to some kind of agreement. The Ukrainians are digging in in the south and the east. They see the relatively limited gains that the Russians are making there, but they still believe that any kind of concession at this point is unacceptable. So really no movement there in terms of what the Europeans and Americans are discussing, although there is still some optimism that some kind of deal sometime in the future could be worked out. In April, the U.S. goal was for Russia to, quote, fail, according to a National Security Council spokesman. It doesn't sound like that's the goal anymore with 100 days in if the U.S. is part of these talks. That's right. And there was a lot of optimism in the beginning of the war, when we saw Ukraine kind of push back the Russians pretty decisively from Kyiv, from the northwestern region of Ukraine. But that has kind of waned, that optimism, as we've seen how Russia is really just going scorched earth in the eastern part of the country. And 
they are making gains, limited gains, but steady. And that has really worried a lot of U.S. officials who have who saw the initial optimism here, who saw, you know, some of uh, the Americans coming out kind of gung ho and saying, look, the Ukrainians can defeat Russia decisively on the battlefield. And that is how this will end. Now, there's a little bit less optimism that that is the case. And they are saying that even with all this advanced weaponry that the United States is sending to Ukraine, ultimately, this is going to be solved at the negotiating table. Yeah. Zelensky said uh, this week that Russia uh, occupies, controls 20 percent of his country. That's that's a lot of his country, 20 percent. Natasha, thanks so much. Appreciate it. Joining us now to discuss former NATO Supreme Allied Commander Admiral James Stavridis. He's also the author of the book To Risk It All. Nine Conflicts and the Crucible of Decision. Admiral, thanks for joining us. In your view, will this war last another 100 days or even beyond that? I think it'll certainly last another 100 days, maybe 100 after that. But at some point, Jake, the pressures on both sides are going to drive us toward a negotiation. Putin's burn rate is occurring in two elements. One is cost. You know, war is hell War is also really expensive. And secondly, lives. His killed in action numbers are ticking up. He's having trouble getting uh, competent troops to the front. So he's got a burn rate going on that side. On the other side, for President Zelensky, who is heroic, Churchillian, an extraordinary strategic communicator, despite all that, over time for the West, there'll be inevitable cracks in support. So those two things ultimately, Jake, will bring these two, I believe, to a negotiation, whether that's three months from now or six months from now. I don't know, but we're not going to be at this for another couple of years. How much do you think the Europeans and even possibly the Americans are being influenced by the fact that this war is inconvenient for Americans and Europeans in terms of energy prices? I mean, that's really costing people at the pump uh, in terms uh, of what, what we're paying. Um, but is that a reason for Europe- Europeans or Americans or whomever to ultimately encourage Ukraine to cede territory? I hope not, Jake. I think there are bigger issues at work here than the price of gas. And oh, by the way, ultimately we'll be able to make that fungible shift so that we will be able to supply oil and gas um, there's going to be a great rewiring here at a certain level in terms of energy flows. But there's going to be inconvenience and consumer pain in the meantime. On the other hand, in Russia, they'll start to really feel the effects of the sanctions toward the end of this year. So again, it's kind of a, a foot race between impact in these two populations. I hope and ultimately I believe the West will stand firm on this because they see how how reprehensible the behavior and dangerous the behavior is of Putin. President Zelensky said this week that 20% of Ukraine is now in Russian control. To be honest, doesn't that mean Russia is to a degree winning? You know, life is compared to what, Jake? And compared to what Putin set out to do, which is to conquer the entire country, and at the end of three months, with uh, massive losses to his military many, many killed in action, thousands and thousands. He's gotten 20%, if you will, of what he set out to do. I don't think that's even a passing grade. Having said all that, of course, it's of deep concern to the Ukrainians, President Zelensky, how that ultimately gets negotiated. 
to be determined by events on the battlefield over the next few months. You write in time about your book and the war saying, quote, today we are watching two international figures representing their nations who are locked in mortal combat, Vladimir Putin and Volodymyr Zelensky, both risking it all in very different ways with unpredictable outcomes. Do, do you think Putin at this point cares about the risks? I think he is concerned about one big risk, which is could all of this lead to something that undermines his control? Thus far, he's not seeing that. On the other hand, you have Zelensky on the other side of this conflict, and he remains incredibly motivated because when he looks over his shoulder, he sees his wife, his children, his elders, his parents, his cities, his language. He's the motivated one on this side. So as I look at two individuals, both risking a great deal and Zelensky risking it all, I score it to the Ukrainians. Admiral James DeVritis, author of the book, To Risk It All, Nine Conflicts in the Crucible of Decision. Thank you so much, Admiral. Good to see you again. Thanks, Jake. Texas law enforcement falsely claimed that a teacher's aide left the door propped open, letting the Uvalde gunman into the school. But that's not what the teacher's aide says happened. And now her lawyer shares her side of the story next. Then, whatever happened to President Biden's promise to forgive some of the $1.6 trillion in student loan debt? We'll tell you. Stay with us. In our national lead, a teacher's aide from Robb Elementary sharing her side of the story after police falsely blamed her for leaving the door the shooter used to enter the school propped open. In fact, it was one of the first things police did in the days following the shooting, claiming the shooter entered the school through a door left propped open by a school employee. But the Texas Department of Public Safety later clarified the shooter entered through a door that was closed, though it didn't lock. Now the teacher's aide's attorney is telling CNN's Omar Jimenez that his client is, quote, shaking from this whole ordeal. It was supposed to be an end-of-the-year class party before it became a nightmare. She saw everything from the time he wrecked to the time she was taken out of there. Special education aide Amelia Marin was meeting a co-worker with food before she sees a car crash. So she props the door open to get her phone and call 911 to report the crash, her lawyer says, before returning to the door. And she looks over to the funeral home to her right, and the two men are yelling, he's got a gun. And she looks and sees him, and he has a weapon that she can't identify, but a big weapon slung over him, and he hops over the fence and starts running towards her. So she kicks the door shut. And did she expect it to lock? Yeah, absolutely. She thought it was going to be locked. Marin scrambles into a nearby classroom as she begins to hear gunshots. He's inside now. She hides. Um, The 911 call drops. They don't call her back. She doesn't attempt to call back because she doesn't want to make any noise. There's some sort of counter that she gets under, but it's exposed. She said that she she thought that at that point she was going to die, and she made her peace with that. So she hears every single gunshot? Every single gunshot. But she was one of the lucky ones who survived. Days later, though, she hears law enforcement say she had left the door the shooter used open. And she's right. second-guessing herself. Right, yeah. It, it, it even made, made her second-guess her own memories. And she had already spoken to the FBI and the Rangers and told them what happened. The Rangers eventually publicly corrected the record. Con tu 
As the community grieves, a flurry of unanswered questions linger, including more about Texas schools police chief Pete Arredondo, acting as incident commander during the shooting. And I have been told that this person did not have, this person being the uh, incident commander, did not have radio communication, and I don't know as to why. At question, if the 911 calls were properly relayed to first responders on the scene, CNN has calls out to Arredondo and law enforcement to confirm. All as documents to prepare death certificates were released listing the grim realities of what was at stake. Multiple gunshot wounds, gunshot wound to the head, and more. Outside that horrific day, the teaching aide, Amelia Marin, has now filed legal documents to get a deposition from Daniel Defense, the manufacturer of the gun used in the shooting, with her attorney saying because the shooter got the weapons on his 18th birthday, he was likely planning the purchases beforehand. So his motivations to get that gun was when he was a minor. Are there, you know, gun companies that are marketing to minors? Is that what they're doing? I mean, how many mass shootings do we have to have by, by 18-year-old men? It, it, it's, it's cookie cutter. So what are they doing to change? Now, it's worth noting the legal petition does not formally accuse the gun manufacturer of wrongdoing. Instead, it's looking to investigate whether Amelia Marin has a basis to file a claim against Daniel Defense, who I should also mention hasn't responded to any request for comment. And Omar, the New York Times just reported new details about one of the 911 calls that a student made from inside the classroom uh, with the gunman. That's right, Jake. I mean, one of the major portions of this investigation is whether 911 calls were being properly relayed to responders. And we're learning that at one point, a 10-year-old made a call to 911 more than 30 minutes after the shooting began. And according to a transcript of the call reviewed by the New York Times, this 10-year-old said, there's a lot of bodies. Also said, I don't want to die. My teacher is dead. My teacher is dead. Please send help. Send help for my teacher. She is shot, but still alive. That call lasted about 17 minutes, and gunfire was heard in the background at points throughout it. She made it out alive, but as we know, Jake, many of her classmates did. 19 dead students, two dead teachers. Omar Jimenez in Uvalde, Texas. Thank you so much. Coming up, from plane tickets to trips to the amusement park, how a summer of fun might turn into a summer bummer for many Americans. Stay with us. In our money lead, more problems if you're planning to fly to your summer vacation destination. Flight delays and cancellations galore. Some are due to bad weather, but many others are because of staffing shortages. It's forcing airlines to shuffle schedules and reduce service. CNN's Pete Montine takes a closer look now at how one major airline is working to meet the summer demand. With summer travel heating up across the country, airlines that receive billions in pandemic aid are hoping they do not melt down. We have to be nimble. On an exclusive tour of American uh, Airlines Operations Center, hundreds work behind the scenes to avoid canceling flights as an unexpected thunderstorm popped up over Dallas. Chief Operating Officer David Seymour showed me how dispatchers diverted arriving flights and reshuffled flight crews so departing flights were ready as soon as the weather cleared. How confident are you that the summer will be a smooth one when it comes to travel? 
I, I'm confident. I think that my team is confident, uh, but we're not overconfident. U.S. Airlines canceled more than 2,700 flights over Memorial Day weekend and delayed another 21,000 nationwide. Delta Airlines led cancellations after saying it will scale back its summer schedule with coronavirus causing higher than planned worker absences. We added capacity coming into the spring. Memorial Day was the first full test of it. And we did see with some, some challenges. Cruise shortages have hobbled the airline industry. A CNN analysis of the latest federal data shows the largest four airlines with 24,000 fewer workers than before the pandemic. The demand has come roaring back and they are struggling to keep up. There's staffing shortages uh, and weather issues. It's a perfect storm. American Airlines says it has hired 12,000 new workers in the last year. Now the question is whether airlines have prepared enough for passengers packing planes at levels not seen since before the pandemic. You can't let your guard down. We have the resources to run the airline, and that's the key thing for us. American Airlines underscores that most of its flights were on time over the Memorial Day weekend, but it offers this reality check. Workers are still calling out sick with coronavirus. It all comes to a head when there's bad weather, Jake. Just yesterday, airlines in the U.S. canceled more than 1,600 flights nationwide. Another 700 cancellations today. Jake. All right, Pete Montine at Reagan National. Thanks so much. Once you get to your vacation destination, do not be surprised how much it might cost you to enjoy it. Food prices, gas prices, all eating to travel budgets, not to mention businesses still struggling with staff shortages. CNN's Vanessa Yurkevich takes a look now at some vacationers, at how some vacationers and folks in the hospitality industry are trying to manage it all. We got a steam-powered carousel and a food stand and a couple of games of chance. And uh, little by little, we're now 60 rides. Since 1926, Noble's Amusement Resort in rural central Pennsylvania has been a summer tourist destination. I see the train slowing down, so there should be some uh, squirrels over a here. Little have a, oh, there's little a little chipmunk. Yeah. The park is free to enter. And rides like the Pioneer train are pay as you go. But even prices at this family run park, surrounded by idyllic farmland, aren't exempt from high inflation. The rising cost of everything, from gasoline to uh, chicken to rolls, uh, electricity, uh, we, we had to um, increase our prices. Inflation is gripping the nation's pocketbook, with prices at a four-decade high. A pain point for President Biden, as most Americans are sour on the economy. Still, an estimated 39 million Americans were expected to travel Memorial Day weekend. Most by car, up from last year. When I hear inflation, that's where we're going to spend our ad dollars more locally. So that's where we're going to be focusing on the backyard tourists, the, the locals. We'll spend more reaching people within a two to three hour range. People like Rebecca Kent, who usually makes a day trip from Philadelphia. She says gas prices won't cut her summer plans. They'll just be scaled back. The one year we were coming up here, I think we made it up here 26 times in the summer. Do you think you're going to dial it back a little bit? Uh, not 26, but probably pretty close to a dozen or more. Valerie Bloom says she's being mindful of higher prices elsewhere, like groceries, so she can still give her kids a great summer, meaningful after two years of COVID. What are you going to do? I mean, like, you got to live. You got to have, yeah, have fun in summertime. 
But more customers means the need for more workers. Despite rising wages, labor shortages persist, with a near record 11.4 million open jobs in the U.S. And inflation is hitting employees here, too. So the park is launching a cost-effective shuttle to save employees gas money and ensure the park is staffed. So it's more money in the employees' pockets. In smaller communities, places like this are economic drivers, supporting other businesses in town. For our success here in town, it's pretty critical. All of our sales will go up once they start. And despite also having to raise prices in store, Kimberly Cooper says the crowds are still coming and buying. It doesn't seem to have made a difference here so far this year. And the small businesses we spoke to in that town say they're excited that they're already seeing these summer tourists come into town. And in just the week leading up to Memorial Day, gas consumption was 5 percent less than last year, just 5 percent. And prices were up more than $1.50 in the last year. So people clearly feeling the pain of these prices, but are making budgetary choices, choosing maybe to cut back elsewhere, maybe scaling back on their summer vacations, Jake. But the folks that we spoke to were eager to get out and have a great summer despite these high prices. Jake. All right, Vanessa Yurkiewicz, thanks so much for that report. It's hard to run for a U.S. Senate seat if you have not been seen in more than three weeks. A doctor's letter was just released as the mystery surrounding Democratic Senate candidate John Fetterman deep in. Stay with us. In our politics lead, it has been three weeks since Pennsylvania's John Fetterman suffered a stroke, which he disclosed a couple days after the fact. He had a defibrillator implanted to regulate his heartbeat. Then he, he went on to win the Democratic nomination for the Senate in Pennsylvania in a landslide. But since then, there has been no announced plans for Lieutenant Governor Fetterman to return to the campaign trail. No sightings of him in public, no interviews, Some Democratic strategists are getting worried. CNN's Casey Hunt has been following this story. Casey, Fetterman's only appeared in previously recorded edited social media videos such as this one. Take a listen. Hey, everybody. I just want to say I'm feeling great, and I just want to thank all of you so much for everything. We're doing really well. We just want to thank you for all of your support. Can you chip in 10 bucks? to help our campaign now. So Fetterman's campaign just released a letter from his cardiologist just this afternoon. What what does it say? Uh, Well, the letter from the cardiologist. So first of all, I think we should underscore his cardiologist is not the team of doctors that treated him for his stroke. That team was at Penn Medicine in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. This is a cardiologist that he saw first back in 2017 who told him that he had heart problems. So the doctor says in this letter that if John Fetterman takes his prescribed medication does the diet and exercise that he has been uh, recommended to do, he will be fine. He will be able to serve in the U.S. Senate. But there's quite a bit in that letter that underscores that Fetterman didn't take care of himself. The the doctor almost, the tone is almost a little bit affronted. He didn't take my advice. He didn't do what I said he should do back in 2017 when I told him he had these heart problems. Uh, And that's part of why he ended up where he was today. And Fetterman also put out a statement himself, and we have a little bit of that we can show everyone. He said it's frustrating that this happened, all the more so because this is my own fault. He acknowledges that this is his responsibility. But bear with me. I need a little more time. I'm not quite back to 100%, but I'm getting closer every day. This race is so important for Pennsylvania and the country. He says, I'm going to be ready for it, and he can't get, wait to get back on the trail. 
Uh, but Jake, I think one thing that probably stood out to you in yeah. these statements here is that he said he almost died. Yeah, he said that in the statement today. Right. Which is not what he said. In the few... video that we showed yeah. everyone. He said, you know, I'm going to be fine. It's like, I feel great. The way that this has now been portrayed is that the incident, and you know, he was probably very lucky that he was as close as he was to a stroke center when this happened, if indeed it's something that he almost died from. So, first of all, I want to underline that obviously we all wish him the best. Of course we do. Uh, and, I'm, and as do his, you know, whoever his Republican opponent's going to end up being. But that said, it does not seem that he, they have been as transparent as they could have been. It took a few days for the campaign to even tell the public he was hospitalized. Um, are they being transparent now? So we, again, the cardiologist seems to be being transparent, although I, I would urge everyone to read the letter in full because you'll see that the cardiologist doesn't seem to be extraordinarily enthusiastic about endorsing the current good health of the lieutenant governor. He right. goes to great lengths to say he's got to do a lot more to get healthy here. We're not hearing from the doctors that treated him for his stroke. So we don't have a lot of information about what happened there. We have what the campaign claims, and that's all that all that there is here. And you know, again, I think we should underscore to viewers, yes, this is a personal health matter, but this is a person who is seeking public office and whose desire to serve the public may also uh, decide the control of the United States Senate in, in its entirety. Yeah, and, and being transparent about these things, I think, for any public official is important. Sochi, yeah. um, Democrats really want to flip this Senate seat, which is currently red, too blue, does Fetterman's health condition, does how he's been handling his health condition, jeopardize that at all, do you think? No, I think that Fetterman is, is Democrats' best shot in flipping. I think if you talk to the DSCC, any Democrat, they would say Pennsylvania is at the top of the list in terms of a seat that, um, a seat that they can win. What I would say is that Fetterman is also not your typical politician. People don't see him as he is hiding something. Actually, his statement was actually quite honest. He said that, yes, he may have he could have potentially died. He also talked about how he did ignore signs early on and that people shouldn't do that. And I think a lot of Americans understand, like, yeah, maybe I should have gone to the doctor. Maybe I shouldn't ignore that headache. Maybe I shouldn't ignore, you know, whatever the side effect is. And maybe I should go to the doctor. So he is making this about a larger issue about how Americans should really pay attention to what is happening with their health take it seriously and go to the doctor. And so I think that is very smart of him. I think it's also smart for them to release a letter saying that not only can he serve, but he can go out and campaign. And I'm sure he'll be on the campaign trail soon. But I do think that Democrats still have a strong chance in winning. Kristen, the um, Republicans are attacking him. They're not attacking him for the health issue or the transparency issue about the health issue. They're attacking him because they say he is too liberal, uh, linking him to Senator Bernie Sanders Uh, The ad just launched today, the TV ad. Take a look. The primary's over. Now left-wing radicals are rolling into Pennsylvania, pushing John Fetterman. Fetterman sided with socialists, backed a government takeover of health care, embraced parts of the Green New Deal that had cost you 50,000 bucks a year. Fetterman said Democrats need to be ruthless. Bernie Sanders calls Fetterman an outstanding progressive. Fetterman admits he'll always vote with Democrats. In this economy, that's the last thing we need. What do you think? Well, I'm glad it's an ad that's focused on issues yep. rather than on his health, issues for is, sure. Issues and, good. and I actually agree that the, the issue around the health in and of itself, you've probably got a lot of men out there in Pennsylvania who are thinking, you know, my doctor told me I need to do X, Y, and, and wives who have husbands. Yes. Yes. <laughs> but in this political environment where Republicans are expected to do quite well, where the, the wind is in Republican sails, 
You do want to make sure you are positioned so that the median voter, the swing voter in the middle, does not think that you are too extreme. And this ad really, I think, does a good job of talking about issues where Fetterman is perhaps outside of where the mainstream or swing working class voter in Pennsylvania is. I think the extent to which the health issue is is going to be a problem is that in an unfavorable political environment, a candidate like Fetterman needs to be out on the campaign trail, shaking as many hands as possible, yeah. doing as many Seven rallies as he can. Yeah. And, and, and the reality is that he can't. And so uh, this is not an Aaron Sorkin movie, right? This is you have to be out there <laughs> meeting voters. Wait, and I, I, I regret <laughs> to inform you, Jake, that it's not. And so while, while I wish him all the best in his recovery, the reality is I do think it will hurt his campaign, not because of any transparency issue, but just the nuts and bolts of retail campaigns. Yeah. So another another uh, uh, high-profile Senate race is in Georgia. Uh, Herschel Walker, the UGA Heisman Trophy winner, uh, won the Republican nomination there. Uh, and the, he, they're going after him. Uh, Eva, take a, a look. This is a, this from incumbent Democratic Senator Raphael Warnock. Has this ad, it's a hard-hitting one, uh, going after Herschel Walker. Take a look. Do you know right now I have something that can bring you into a building that will clean you from COVID as you walk through this, this dry mix? As you walk through the door, it will kill any COVID on your body. When you leave, it will kill the virus as you leave this here product. They don't want to talk about that. They don't want to hear about that. Yeah, I don't know what that means, but uh, you can see on the screen it says... Is Herschel Walker really ready to represent Georgia? And uh, this is, I mean, Walker says a lot of things that sound a lot like that. Right. There's a lot more from where this came from that the Warnock campaign can use. And so they're going to lean into this heavily because they think that this is a winning strategy. What I will say, though, is is during the primary, it felt like every day there was a bad Herschel Walker story. And it didn't change the reality uh, for him with Republican voters. So I'm really curious to see now in the general election if this works for Democrats. Uh, He actually kind of reminds me of the former president a bit in that um, leading up to the election uh, between uh, the former president and Hillary Clinton, there was tons of bad stories about the former president, and he still won that election. So we'll have to see if it has an impact. Uh, One other thing that... uh that struck me today. Uh, here's Republican Congressman Louis Gohmert. Um, he was asked about the Justice Department indicting Peter Navarro with contempt of Congress for not complying uh, with the subpoena. Um, it's <laughs> well, let me just play it. It actually puts an exclamation point on the fact that we have a two-tier justice system. Uh, if you're a Republican, you can't even lie to Congress or lie to an FBI agent or they're coming after you. I mean, can you imagine? You, you can't, can't even you can't even lie either. to an FBI agent if you're if you're a Republican. I mean, you can't if you're a Democrat either. It does not matter. <laughs> oh, wait, it's don't you, lie to the FBI. Don't lie OK, to the it's FBI. not advised. Just don't do it. I mean, do you have a response? Like, no, no. When I got when before coming on the show, I saw this clip <laughs> pop up and I thought there's what do you even say? I mean, look, Louis you Gilmer, can't even this is not hold the up first a bank time. if you're a Republican. <laughs> the, the, the outrage, the indignities. Don't lie to the feds. And additional advice to Peter Navarro, who is, you know, this is all about Peter Navarro uh, being sort of indicted and arrested today, who I believe is trying to represent himself right. uh, in court. Don't, don't do that either. 
Gomert went on to note that uh, that there was a Democrat who was tried for this, but was found not guilty. Yes, the FBI, they prosecuted him. This, okay. is, this is sort of the woe is me, though, sort of playbook that we often hear from Republicans, that they're being targeted by everyone, by the, the state, right, by the uh, big brother, by you Democrats, cannot, everyone. If you're a Republican, you cannot steal a nuclear missile. You cannot do that, Eva. I don't know what, <laughs> this is two-tiered. All right, thank you so much. Breathe. It's Happy not Friday, inflation or high gas prices for millions of Americans. Their number one issue is forgiving student loan debt. Is President Biden any closer to keeping a campaign promise on that? Stay with us. In our money lead today, this week, President Biden canceled $5.8 billion in college student debt for more than a half a million borrowers. It's the largest loan cancellation from the Biden administration to date. But millions of others are anxiously waiting for President Biden to keep his campaign promise to forgive $10,000 in federal student loan debt per student. CNN's Adrian Broadus speaks with some Americans who say that relief is desperately needed. Vanessa such a tri- trials and tribulations. Vanessa Russell became the first in her family to earn a bachelor's degree, but she's also graduating with student loan debt. The last time I checked, it was approximately 48000 They come to find you. Russell says a debt collector called her while she was working. They asked for Vanessa. They're like, this is the debt collector, basically, <laughs> collecting. We, we were trying to find you. Like, when are you going to pay your, your student debt? At one point, Russell temporarily dropped out of school. I did have to leave Columbia and pay a balance that was due in order for me to go back. But she's not alone. Data shows there is about $1.6 trillion in federal student loan debt. Tavia Ridgeway wants a six-figure salary, but right now she has nearly a six-figure student loan debt. I'd be in the range of like 80 to 100K uh, just based on my tuition rates right now. That's even after Tavia became a resident advisor to cut down on her room and board cost. You should get a free education because you can't put a price on knowledge. I'm going to make sure that everybody in this generation gets $10,000 knocked off of their student debt. On the campaign trail, Joe Biden promised to cancel $10,000 in student loan debt for each of the 43 million people with federal student loans. Due to the pandemic, he did pause loan repayments until August 31st. But it is not clear if and when the White House will move forward with some form of permanent loan forgiveness, despite pressure from fellow Democrats at the other end of Pennsylvania Avenue. You don't need Congress. All you need is the flick of a pen. Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer pushing to cancel $50,000 debt per borrower. Biden has rejected those calls. I am not considering $50,000 debt reduction. The White House does say Biden is considering some debt forgiveness for those making up to $125,000. Gabby Bach, like Ridgeway, was a resident advisor. She calls it a broken campaign promise. I think this is something that Biden has promised and is something that I feel like he hasn't delivered on yet. During the campaign or just knowing like that this was something that a lot of people who voted for him, that this was something that they wanted. I say it would only help a little bit. If anything, I'd want my full tuition covered, but you know, that's not the world we live in. Russell welcomes any relief. It would help me so much. It's like an emotional experience because 
it's taking me so long and I almost gave up and <laughs> sorry <laughs> just thinking about it And a year and a half into his presidency, Biden has canceled more than $17 billion in student loans. But that is tied to investigations into faulty loan practices and institutions that no longer exist. Jake. All right, Adrian Bronis, thanks so much. We'll be right back. Be sure to join us for CNN's State of the Union this Sunday. My guests include Commerce Secretary Gina Raimondo, Democratic Senator from Connecticut Chris Murphy, and former Republican Congressman and aide to the January 6th Committee, Denver Riggleman. That's at 9 o'clock a.m. and noon Eastern on Sunday. Until then, you can follow me on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and the TikTok at Jake Tapper. You can tweet the show at the lead CNN. If you ever miss an episode of the show, you know what you can do. You can listen to the lead wherever you get your podcasts. Our coverage continues now with one Mr. Wolf Blitzer right next door in a place I'd like to call the Situation Room. I will see you Sunday morning. We all do things our own way. And since the way that each of us sleeps is unique, you need a bed that fits you just the right way. Sleep Number smart beds make your sleep experience as individual as you are, using cutting-edge technology to give you effortless, high-quality sleep every night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $15.99. Save $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com.